in a minute or two, Drew is going to come up and uh, share the word with us and share his thoughts. Um, but the, I w- we always hesitate. Do we do announcements before when there's very few people here or do we do it and kind of break the cycle of worship? And um, they let us into a, a really neat time of worship. But there's so much going on uh, in the life of our church and the fellowship aspects of our church that I just wanted to highlight some of those. And and uh, one of my goals in these next few months is to start a battle of the sexes. Um, the women of Grace Chapel have been so far way up here and above the activities uh, of the the men uh, that uh, we've been falling behind. And lately we've been pushing forward to do a little bit more stuff, trying to catch up. And so I want to go back and forth and back and forth. But um, the women have had an awesome retreat over the years, hundreds of women uh, participating in that. And then they do Bible studies several a week. And um, and then also uh, just a, a lot of different fellowship kind of things. And, and, and the men have been battling back with, we have a program called Me and My Dad for Dads and Their Sons, monthly adventure uh, for dads and sons. And then we added a She and Her Dad, a monthly adventure for dads and their daughters. And um, then we're going to start a men's monthly breakfast on Saturday, the first Saturday morning of each month leading up to a retreat this fall. And so lots of really, really cool things happening. Be sure to read your family news bulletin and the signups for all of these things. The headquarters are right out here, this this booth out here, the information booth. And so make a habit of visiting that area uh, each Sunday to see what you could get involved in. Um, I just, I just want to, to pray as we continue on with our worship, and then Drew has uh, his words for us this morning. God, we thank you. We love you. We, uh, we worship you. And uh, we just pray this morning that you would guide us into a time that through our fellowship, through our listening, through our singing, through our praying, through our hearing your word, that your name would be lifted up and that you would make yourself known to us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This will never happen, but... After that, we should just pray and go home, right? I mean, that was marvelous. That was, praise the Lord for that. It was just wonderful. And a great reminder of what it is to know Jesus Christ and the freedom that comes in him. This morning, I'm hopeful that I can remind us all of some of those things that we have as a result of knowing our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Our topic for this morning is about a dedicated worshiper. When I think of dedicated, there are several images that pop into my mind. I think of a dedicated athlete who is committed to and invests time in his sport. Whenever I think of dedicated, the image of a soldier pops into my mind. He is dedicated to his country, committed to giving himself over to his country as the most important thing in his life. I think of a dedicated worker, a worker who seems to put his job above all other things. And so this morning, as we focus in on a dedicated worshiper, we focus in on a person who is dedicated to God above all else. 
and in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, we are given four understandings of a worshiper of God. Four things that a worshiper of God understands so that he is able to sustain that level of dedication and commitment even when he may not be in a place like this, surrounded by people like you and filled with music like this. The first understanding that a dedicated worshiper has is found in verse 13. Notice what it says. It says, Now when Joshua was, Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. The first understanding that we have is the presence of God in our life. You see, Joshua is filling a big pair of shoes, right? He is taking the place of Moses. Moses was the great legislator. The law of God came to Moses. He gave it to his people. Moses was the great liberator. He was the one that delivered his people from Egypt, took them across the Red Sea, heading them towards the promised land. It was Moses who was the great man of God. And now here we have Joshua filling his place. Joshua is going to get to be that guy. And when he is given that responsibility in Joshua chapter 1, God says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Allowing the weight of responsibility to fall upon Joshua and the reminder that now he's the man. And the promise that God gives to him in Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, is he says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I will always be there for you. Now think of all the promises that you've made in your lifetime. Think of all the things that you may have wished someone would have said to you. Think about this one, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now the marvelous thing about this is that it's God's that's saying it, and he's saying to Joshua, I will always be there for you. I will never be away. And see, sometimes we think that that is the way that it works, isn't it? We think that God is the one that has left. We think that God is the one that goes away and leaves us to ourselves. But instead, we are the ones that turn our backs to God and try to run away from him, but we never can. And finally, when we come back to our senses, we turn and there he is. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. A worshiper of God who is dedicated to worshiping has that understanding that the presence of God is always there. In, first, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is winding down his life. And he has, he comes to the conclusion of his life. He has some words for Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. And he reminds Timothy of what it is that God has done for him. And he says in verse 16, he says, At my first defense, no one came to support me, but everyone deserted me. You see, Paul was in prison. He was put on trial. No one shows up. Everyone deserts him. But he still has a message of hope because he says this, May it not be held against them, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. The perpetual presence of God A worshiper who is dedicated understands that God is here. He keeps showing up. 
There is never anything differently done for him. He is always there. He is always available. He always hears. He always has something to give to us because he is always there. See, sometimes as our human nature bends us, we expect people to do that for us. We expect it to be our father or our mother or a sister or a friend or someone. We expect they ought to be there, and sometimes they can't be. And so we begin to have this attitude of, well, no one's... And we begin to force that off on God instead of understanding that he never leaves us or forsakes us. He is eternally in our presence. He will never, ever opt out. When my wife and I got married, one of the songs that was sung at our wedding was a song. It was, uh, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. And after the wedding, a friend of mine took me aside and he says, please, He wasn't only in this place, but he will be with you in every place from here on. God is faithful to be in our presence. The worshiper of God understands what it is to have the presence of God everywhere. Notice the second understanding that Joshua came to in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. He said he, he understood his position as a servant, his position as a servant. In verse 14, he says, um, Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? Moses had a servant for 40 years. His name was Joshua. Joshua did whatever Moses wanted for 40 years. Go get me this. Go do this for me. Joshua did it. Joshua understood what it was like to be a slave. He had been born into slavery in Egypt, remember? He understood what it was to work. He had worked very hard in his lifetime. He was part of the slave group that, that built Israel into the, the uh, built Egypt into the magnificent city that it was. He understood what it was to suffer. He understood what it was to see people that suffered. He had learned how to trust God for victory. Remember, the Amalekites came to fight Moses and his men. And Moses said, Joshua, you do the fighting, we'll do the praying. And Moses went up on the mountain, and he stood with Aaron and Hur, and they held up his arms, and Moses was up there interceding on behalf of Joshua and the people, and Joshua was down fighting, and he knew what it was to trust the Lord for victory. He was a man of great courage, too, wasn't he? I mean, think of this image, this picture. Here is this man with his sword drawn, and Joshua walks up to him and said, Are you on our side or are you on the enemy's? I probably would have run, right? He had great courage. But the greatest thing that Joshua ever did was in verse 14 when he fell on his face before God. He fell down before God. That is so important because, you see, when we fall on our face before God in private, we can stand before men in public. And that's what he does. He, he falls on his face before God, and then he goes to Jericho and takes that place. Remember that? The position of our life is servanthood. You see, prayer is all about my limitations meeting God's sufficiency, right? It is when I approach God in prayer, when I understand that I am a servant. Notice how he approaches him. He approaches him reverently, fell face down on the ground. There are all kinds of positions of prayer. There's all kinds of positions of worship. Some people fall on their face in prayer. Some people fall on their knees. Some people stand. Some people walk around. Remember Peter. Peter was neck deep in water. And what did he do? He prayed. 
It doesn't matter physically what position you're in. It's about your heart understanding that I am approaching a holy God who is my father. There is a casualness in prayer that sometimes comes across because we want to have that relationship. The best relationship is when we understand that God is our heavenly father who created the universe. Not that he's our buddy or our BFF. You see, we need to go reverently before God in prayer. Notice what else he does. He goes expectantly. Notice what it says. It says he fell face down on the ground in reverence. And then he said, what message does my Lord have for his servant? He goes expecting. He says, what's the message? You see, again, we sometimes forget that prayer is not about approval, right? We aren't submitting something to God in prayer and saying, okay, God, rubber stamp this for me. Instead, we are going to him and expecting him to tell us what it is that he wants for us. Remember, the prayer is the will in heaven be done on earth. Not the will on earth be done in heaven or not my will, but thine be done, right? You see, we go expectantly what it is that God is going to say to us. Notice the third way he approached God. He he approached him submissively. He says, what message does my Lord have for his servant? He goes submissively. You, You see, he is the second in command. You say, wait a minute, he's the captain of 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 Israel's army, but he's number two. Again, this is a very unpopular message in today's 21st society. It is not about being a servant. It's about being a leader, being a leader. We have a leadership conference we'd like for you to attend. We have a leadership group that we would like for you to plug into. We have leadership. We have leadership. We have leadership. We want you to be a leader. Parent-teacher conferences are oftentimes, that's what I end up doing, listening to a parent say to me, I want my child to be a leader But, you know, that's completely different than the biblical method, isn't it? The way up is down in God's economy. Submissively, I'm a servant. And when Joshua understood that he was a servant, that's when great victories came, isn't it? There were two times, however, that Joshua failed to understand that he was the second in command. The first time came just a few days later after Jericho. After the great victory at Jericho, they had to move on to Ai. Remember that? And in Joshua chapter 7, they move on to Ai, and Joshua sends out his spies, and the spies come back and they say, listen, we only need one or 2,000 people. Don't weary your army for this one. Just send a few. And what did Joshua do? He bought into what the spies were saying. He thought, he's right, we've got a great army, I'm a great leader, off we go. And what happens? They're completely blitzed. By AI, a small, insignificant speck on the map. And when they come back, that's when he falls down on his face again and says, God, I have failed to realize that I am second in command. You see, the position of a dedicated worshiper is the position of a servant. The second time that he failed to recognize that he was the second in command was when a group of people called the Gibeonites showed up. Uh, The Gibeonites showed up, and what they had done is they had allowed their bread to mold. They had put on their dirtiest and their rattiest-looking clothes, their sandals with the holes in them, and they came marching up to Joshua in this weary manner saying, We have traveled from afar. Please enter into a, a treaty with us. We need your help. 
in reality were they in reality they were just neighbors and they were next on the list of those that needed to be wiped out in order for them to get to the promised land and in verse number 14 of Joshua chapter 9 it says this it says the men of Israel sampled their provisions that means the men of Israel looked at everything Joshua inspected they saw the holes they saw this but notice the next part it says but did not inquire of the Lord you see it was the moment where Joshua said, you know what? Second in command, I'm a leader. Let me lead. And just like Ai, failure comes. The position of a servant, a dedicated worshiper understands that position and he takes it. You see, too many times what happens as we are caught up in the culture of 21st century America is we forget the words of John chapter 15. Remember in John chapter 15, he's using the analogy of the vine and the branches. And in verse 5, Jesus says this. He says, I am the, van- I am the vine, you are the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. But you see, in 21st century America, we have decided that we can do lots of things without God. But when we decide to do things without God, we do not succeed, but we fail because we are here for him and not for ourselves. The understanding is the presence of God is always with us. The understanding of a dedicated worshiper is the position he has is that of a servant. And Joshua grasped that. I love verses 13 and 14. In verse 13, remember what Joshua asked? Joshua asked, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And what does the commander of the Lord's army say? He says, neither. I don't work for you and I don't work for them. I work for God, and you work for me. Warren Wiersbe, author and preacher, wrote this, Anyone who has never taken orders should never give orders. The reason why Joshua did so well on so many occasions is because he understood his position of a servant. Please notice the third understanding of a dedicated worshiper is found in verse 15. Verse 15, it says this, the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And Joshua did so. The third understanding is the understanding that every place you stand is holy ground. Stay with me. Sometimes when you say the word holy, people begin to back up and say, I don't like that word. Stay with me and let's become friendly with it. He says, where you are standing is holy ground. Do you remember where he is? In verse 13, it says he was near Jericho. Jericho is holy ground. Jericho was a place of great pagan worship and ceremony. Jericho was a place of great wickedness and people who decided to serve themselves and nothing else. Jericho is holy ground. Somebody needs a new GPS. Someone didn't update their Garmin, right? How can that possibly be holy ground? Because if you are God's servant doing God's work, you are on holy ground. You say, well, holy, I just don't like that word. I, don't, I, I used to not like it because when I was a little kid, holy was a fearsome, frightening thing for me because I, I thought holy meant that I was going to have to wear a suit and tie and have my, my, my hair plastered down with vitalis for the rest of my life. I thought that's what holy was. Because that's the image that was sometimes set before me. That's a holy man. 
He never smiles. He never does this. He never does that. But instead, we need to come to the understanding that holy is simply the idea of being separated unto, right? Think about this. Remember when you, you did the wedding vows? We, we did it a couple of weeks here. Some of you did it long ago. Your wedding vows, what did it say? It says, I take this vow and I am forsaking all others for you, right? You're holy. You have a holy relationship with your wife, with your husband. It's a holy relationship because you have separated yourself from everyone else to her. So that wherever you go and whatever you do, you are linked to her and have an understanding that everything that is out there, I must approach in a manner understanding that I am separated to her or to him. Right? And that's the same way it is with God. When we decide that we are going to be a dedicated worshiper, we are set aside for God. We are set aside so that every step that we take and every place that we go, we are walking on holy ground. Holy ground. And one of the things that happens when, you're, when you begin to understand about holiness is you begin to understand, you know what, I need to keep clean. I need to wash myself. And the way that I wash myself is by spending time in his word and understanding what he wants from me. You've been to the fast food restaurant, right? You walk in and you say, oh, I better go in here to the restroom. And you go in, you wash your hands. And as you're washing your hands, you turn, and there's the sign on the door, and what does it say? All employees must wash their hands before returning to work. I don't know if this happens to you, but it happens to me. I go, oh, man, they have to be reminded? But they are reminded. You've got to be clean. You've got to go in here. You've got to wash your hands. You've got to be clean when you're, you're meeting with the people. I have been to hospitals before. I have been in doctor's offices. And, and I, I have never seen a sign in a doctor's office that says, all doctors must wash their hands before dealing with their patients. Why do you think that is? Well, because of maturity. Over time, what has happened? Well, it's just reflective. The doctor walks in. What does he do? He sticks his hands and washes his hands. Then he comes over and talks to me. My dentist, what does he do? He washes his hands, and then he talks to me. There's no sign. It becomes reflexive. And that's what happens when we are separated, when we are holy. It just becomes reflexive. I need to be clean because everywhere that I'm going, everything that I am do, my next move is for God, and I need to be clean in order to execute the plan that he has for me. And so when he talks about being on holy ground, he is telling us that we are separated no matter where we are. We're holy. It's holy ground. So whenever you, you, you turn on your computer and power it up, that's a holy computer. That's God's computer. What's going to come out of the screen? Is it going to be holy? Is it going to be God-honoring? Is it going to be clean? When you pick up your cell phone and begin to text, or, or when you pick up your cell phone and you begin to, to dial, whatever it is, is that going to be holy? Is that going to be clean? Is that going to be something that God is going to be pleased that you are using his holy item for his glory? When I walk into my classroom, I'm walking on holy ground. That's God's place. And so my behavior and the way that I am, I, I better do my best every opportunity that I have because I'm in God's place. I'm in his presence. The point of this whole series on worship is to help us to understand that worship is not about a moment. But worship is about a life. You see, just because God uses these words that we don't use on an ordinary, everyday basis doesn't mean that they aren't good words. <laughs> It is good to understand that everywhere we go, we're walking on holy ground. Dedicated worshiper. The church is a good place to be. 
But we, as dedicated worshipers, we understand that wherever you are, you are still worshiping God. You're still worshiping God. There are those people that are today running the Flying Pig Marathon. Isn't that today? Now, just because they're running the marathon does not make them a dedicated runner, does it? No, they've become a dedicated runner because they've done all of the work up into this and they have constantly absorbed in their life the pain and the agony of being a runner and said, now this is my climactic moment. Same thing with a worshiper of God. We spend the entire week and this is merely a climactic moment to be here in church, to hear the worship band, to to hear the message presented from God's word. That's just merely a climactic moment of worship. That's not it. We are every day walking on holy ground in the presence of God. And a dedicated worshiper of God understands that every place you stand is holy ground. A dedicated worshiper understands the presence of God. A dedicated worshiper understands the position of a servant. And finally, the dedicated worshiper understands he will prevail in the end. Look at verses, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. It says, now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out, no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. Joshua, you win. You win. That's a very important point in the life of Joshua. Because remember what he is? He is a great leader. He is a great warrior. He is a great commander. He is one who has has come to the position where he has this mighty army and he is going to take this mighty army and he is going to cleanse the land so that the Israelites can take possession of the promised land. That's who he is, right? He's this warrior. And then God says to him, Joshua, you're going to win. Think of the confidence and the emboldenment that he has as a result of that. Well, he better hold on to that because you know what God does then in verses 3 and 4? He tells Joshua how he's going to win. Do you remember what he said? Okay, for six days, what you're going to do is you're going to march around the city one time for six days. Then on the seventh day, you're going to take the the, the priests and the Ark of the Covenant, and they're going to lead the way, and you're going to walk around the city for seven times on the seventh day. And then what what are we going to do? Then we're all going to shout and scream And the walls will fall down. Now, are you understanding the context here? This is Joshua. He's a mighty warrior. What does he want to do? He wants to take siege of the city. He wants to bring it down, right? But God says, no, listen, we're going to march around the city for six days. And then on the seventh day, we're going to march seven times around the city. And then we're all going to yell, (laughs) If you're Joshua, what do you do? Well, given what he's just been through, you know what he does? Exactly what God says. You see, that was not Joshua's plan. Joshua's plan would have been to to get his army together and to, to create this great battle plan and take Jericho. But you see, that wasn't God's plan. But because Joshua knew that God is with him, that he is a servant, And that everywhere he goes is holy ground. He is able to say, you know what, I'm going to win, so I'm going to do whatever God says. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30, there is no mention of Joshua in Hebrews 11, verse 30. Do you know what it says? By faith, the walls fell down. It doesn't say anything about Joshua. You see, because God's the winner. 
God is the one that accomplished it. And so Joshua doesn't even get a mention because it was God who does it through the faith of the people who are led by Joshua. You see, once we begin to understand all of that is that God has for us and that we are going to win in the end, all of a sudden there aren't crazy plans. There aren't absurd suggestions by God. There aren't crazy commandments. Instead, we say, well, of course, by faith, I trust you and believe you, God. And that's what I will do because I'm going to win. You see, we prevail in the end. And oftentimes we forget about that. We forget that this is not it. This world and what is going on now, this is not the measure of all things. The measure of all things is when God calls us to himself and says, you know what, now it's time to give account of what's going on. You've been a winner because of me. You see, a dedicated worshiper of God understands that he will prevail in the end. And so what this does, it builds this confidence within us, this understanding that no matter what it is that I'm going through, no matter what it is that God has for me, I'm going to win in the end. Now be careful. Winning in the end does not mean my win. It's going to be God's win. And sometimes what I think is winning and what God thinks is winning are two totally different things. Sometimes God's win comes as a result of my heart being broken. Sometimes God's win comes in a way where my life is shattered. Sometimes God's winning is not like my winning. I would like for life to be wonderful and easy and cushy. But God says, I don't want your life to be like that because I want to knock off all of the dirt and the grime and the edges so that I can polish you and hone you into the blessed image of my son, Jesus Christ, so that when I take you into glory, it is a marvelous time of fellowship for us together. But sometimes we don't want that. And we have to back up again and remember, hey, listen, I'm a servant here. And whatever my master wants, that's what I will do. You see, we get so caught up in trying to understand that God has this perfect little picture of people that he uses. He doesn't. We need to remember that God uses the weak and the foolish things to confound the wise. We need to remember that it was, it was Jesus who, who, in order to heal the blind man's eyes, he spits in the dirt and rubs it on his eyes. Dirt. You see, we need to remember that God has all of these marvelous ways of making you winners. And that in the end, we always will prevail because of him. When I was a kid growing up, I used to spend my summers in Kentucky. And we used to go and find as many guys as we could, and we'd play baseball. And I didn't, I wasn't very good, and I knew that. But if I could talk my cousin Randy into going with us, I knew I would win every time. Because Randy could throw a baseball so hard, he could throw it through a car wash and it wouldn't get wet. I was sure of that. And every time he played, he would strike every guy out that they brought against us and he would hit every ball over the fence. And so every time I played with him, I thought, I'm not very good, but we're going to win because he's with us. And this morning, let me remind you that a dedicated worshiper, no matter what you think of yourself, think of God and what he can do, and you'll be a winner because of his prevailing power. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for how good you are to us. You are good to us by showering us with grace and mercy, allowing us to be in this place to enjoy music 
and to hear words from you. Father, allow these things to fill our minds and our hearts so that each day we will do what brings great pleasure to you, our Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Have a wonderful week.